The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, rogue agents swept up in the search for an ancient relic, an old weapon that stands ready for a galactic emperor to wield, and the dawning of a new era here at the Bain Free Radio Hour headquarters. All that plus our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor David Afsharirad. Those of you who listened to or watched the podcast last week know that it is the end of an era here at the Bain Free Radio Hour. After eight and a half years and over 500 weekly shows, podcast host Tony Daniel is stepping out of the recording booth and riding off into the sunset. We salute his work bringing audiobooks, publishing news, and most of all, in-depth interviews to our audience, in addition to his off-kilter sense of humor. To say he'll be missed is an understatement, but as the saying goes, the show must go on, and we're excited to bring you the next generation of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Going forward, I'll be your producer and host, and I'll also be conducting the occasional author interviews. But the bulk of the questions will be asked by a rotating panel of guest interviewers, the first of which we'll meet here in just a moment. It's an exciting time here at the Bain Free Radio Hour, and we hope you'll stick with us here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy as we keep reaching for the stars. For this first show after Tony's departure, we bring you the inimitable Les Johnson talking about his new novel, The Space-Time War. But as Tony would say, first, the news. The fresh batch of EARCs are in. First up, we have the new Tim Powers novel, Stolen Skies. UFOs in the skies of Los Angeles. With flying saucers on the move at the giant rock monolith in the Mojave Desert, grayling sightings at a cultist temple in the Hollywood Hills, a monstrous alien apparition in the Los Angeles River, and a harrowing midnight visitation on a boat off Long Beach Harbor, aliens seem to be invading Southern California. But what kind of aliens, and to what purpose? One thing former Secret Service agent Sebastian Vickery knows is that whatever their purpose, it can't be a good one. Now Vickery has learned something about UFOs that he shouldn't have, and naval intelligence, desperate to silence him, orders his old partner, Agent Ingrid Castine, to trap him. But Castine risks her life to warn Vickery, and now they're both fugitives on the run from both the U.S. government and agents of the Russian GRU Directorate, which has its own uses for the UFO intelligence. With the unlikely aid of a renegade Russian agent, a homeless Hispanic boy, and an eccentric old flat earther, Vickery and Castine must find an ancient relic that may banish the alien species. The only problem is making use of the relic could also result in the destruction of Southern California in the process, up to and including agents Vickery and Castine. Next up, we have The Deep Man by Michael Merceau. Break the shaper's hold and free the stars. The galactic imperium of the myriad worlds slumps into centuries of decadent peace enabled by a flood of advanced technology from the mysterious non-human shapers. 
Among the great families, only the once mighty clan of Sinclair Maru remembers the maxims of the warrior emperor, Young Ai, ready to defend the Imperium from any threat. Stubbornly clinging to the honor code, family prodigy Saif Sinclair Maru finds himself in command of an outmoded, under-equipped frigate of the Imperial fleet. With spies and assassins on every side, trusting only in his considerable skill and the bizarre competence of his companion, Inga, Saif must complete his mission, restore the greatness of his family, and uncover the chilling plot to extinguish humanity's light from the galaxy. The stunning debut of an exciting new voice in epic science fiction. That was Stolen Skies by Tim Powers and The Deep Man by Michael Merceau, available now on Bane.com in eARC format. For the month of October, we've got scary good deals on Bane Books Anthologies. It's the Anthology Galactica October ebook sale. Perhaps nothing highlights the ideas of science fiction and fantasy quite as well as the short story. Bane Books has long kept the short story alive and delivering the sense of awe and wonder. SF and fantasy is known for. Throughout October, get these hot anthologies for a cool price. Get $2 off Weird World War III and Cosmic Corsairs and $1 off over two dozen more anthologies. Check out Bane.com for details. The sale ends October 31st and these discounts apply wherever Bane ebooks are sold. In just a moment, we'll be bringing you our interview with Les Johnson about his new novel, The Space-Time War. But first, I want to introduce you to this week's guest interviewer. You may know him as the co-author with Eric Flint of the Ring of Fire novels, 1636, Mission to the Mughals, and 1637, The Peacock Throne, among other short stories he's written for various Bane anthologies and other uh, novels and projects he's worked on with other publishers. He is Griffin Barber, and we want to welcome him to the Bane Free Radio Hour team. Griffin, welcome aboard. Thanks very much, David. I appreciate it. So you've been on the podcast before talking about your own work. What was it like being on the other side of things, getting to actually ask the questions? Uh, it was interesting. It, it uh, certainly was a different uh, uh, aspect of uh, interviewing and, and that kind of thing. I've, I've been a police officer for most of my adult life. So part of that was uh, doing a lot of interviews, but to, then to be uh, interviewing someone that, uh, you know, not to get the facts or something like that, but <laughs> their, their take on their own work was uh, interesting. Yeah, and so you interviewed Les Johnson. Uh, had you met Les before at any conventions? I, I, think, we, I think we were introduced in, in passing at, say, Liberty Con or, or one of the conventions, um, but uh, I never had any kind of lengthy conversation with him, and uh, it was certainly uh, impressive to read his, uh, his resume and uh, uh, to become aware of what his background is uh, in science and NASA, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say, he's such an interesting guy. I've had a chance. To, I've never interviewed him for the podcast, but um, I think it's some Bane room party or something at Dragon Con or something kind of was in his orbit. And it's uh, it's such a cool guy to talk to because, like you say, obviously his books, but his background in science and engineering and working on solar sails. Did you guys get into any of that? Like what he's, you know, how his science and engineering background because i know it really does inform his fiction a lot yes uh to a to a small degree um and mostly in the lead up because one of the things we had to do was to to uh, you know he had his 
um, his resume, as it were, for us to, to read and review. <laughs> and it was very, very lengthy. So we kind of cut out a few things that were like, we, we judged were kind of, we could do without uh, for the purposes of this particular interview. But uh, yeah, it, uh, really impressive stuff. And, and uh, you know, his career has, has spanned so many years and then to have uh, these active missions that he's got coming up uh, um, that he's in charge of as, as far as the uh, lead scientist for them or lead investigator for them was really, really impressive and, and interesting to kind of hear that uh, inside baseball about how things go on at NASA. And uh, part of that informed his work was, was also the social aspects of it or the, uh, the bureaucratic aspects of being a part of uh, the National uh, Aeronautics and Space Agency. Right. Well, that uh, sounds like something to look forward to in the interview coming up. Uh, we're going to have you back in a few weeks uh, talking about the new Ring of Fire entry, something you know a lot about, uh, yeah. that, uh, that series, uh, that's 1637 Coast of Chaos. So we're going to look forward to that and just having you around to do these guest interviews. We uh, want to welcome you to the team again. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. It. Let's take a look at the interview. Uh, Griffin Barber talking with Les Johnson about the space-time war. Hello all and welcome. I'm Griffin Barber, guest host for this edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Today I'm with Les Johnson, author of The Spacetime War. Les Johnson is an author, futurist, and NASA technologist. Publishers Weekly noted that the spirit of Arthur C. Clarke and his contemporaries is alive and well when describing his first novel, Mission to Methany. Nor is his contribution solely in fiction. Graphene, the super strong, super thin, and super versatile material that will revolutionize the world was co-authored with Joe Meany. He is an elected member of the International Academy of Astronautics, a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, and a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, the National Space Society, and Mensa. In his day job at NASA, Les is a principal investigator of two interplanetary space missions at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. The first, near-Earth asteroid scout scheduled for space flight in early 2022 will use a 925 square foot solar sail to propel a small spacecraft to rendezvous with an asteroid. He's also been a subject matter expert for film, TV, and certain documentaries. 2021 is a big publishing year for Les with Saving Proxima's August hardcover publication by Bain, the reprinting of the Going Interstellar Science Fiction and Science Fact Anthology in September, and now The Spacetime War. Welcome, Les. Well, thanks, Griffin. Good to be here. So uh, we're here again to discuss The Spacetime War, and I wanted to start off with kind of an odd question. Um, what is, for you, the coolest thing in The Spacetime War? The thing wow. that made you excited to tell the story. Uh, why was it so exciting for you? That kind of thing. Well, well, for me, the uh, I, I guess not to. Uh, I don't want to give too much away for folks that haven't read the book. But what, the coolest thing for me was playing with the <laughs> the big reveal. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying in the story that comes from our understanding of space time. And uh, as a physicist, I like to play around, well, science fiction reader, science fiction writer, uh, ever since I can remember, you know, asking the what if questions. And as we start thinking about deep space travel and, and some of the weird stuff that uh, we're coming to understand about how our universe works in general relativity, you have to wonder if there aren't uh, some other things we have yet to uncover in those theories that are unexpected twists to our understanding of nature. 
And so there's a there's a bit of a plot twist in here, which I don't want to give away uh, before people have had a chance to read the book. But when you read the book, you'll find out uh, the mystery that gets uncovered. To me, that was what I was most excited about was the the the, the, the quirk of nature that I reveal, uh, which may or may not be a real quirk of nature. Remember, this is science fiction. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, when did it, when or how did it strike you? Is this something that's been al along with you while you, uh, I, I understand you got your master's uh, back in the 90s or, or, or late 80s? Is this that's right. I've been around a while. I'm follically challenged. So <laughs> I, I, I resemble that remark. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think but, we both do. Well, actually, I have to give a shout out to uh, the author, Sarah Hoyt. Uh, Sarah and I talked about collaborating on a novel for quite a while. And she and I battered around the, uh, the idea for this book uh, a few times. And then she got involved. I think she had a book that, that she was writing with Larry Correa uh, mm -hmm. at the time and didn't have time to go forward with the novel. And she said, why don't you just go ahead and do it? And maybe we can collaborate on something else. So I give her an acknowledgement in the book. She, she really helped, uh, helped develop the upfront ideas for this. So no, I can't say that this particular plot twist was solely a creation in my own head of a few years ago. Now, all the characters in the story that surround that are, uh, but it, the other was really a, a joint effort between Sarah and me. And uh, so speaking of that kind of aspect of it, I was impressed by your ability to teach the basics of some of the rather complex science uh, in the uh, space-time war without uh, throwing me out of the story. Sometimes you get some uh, folks when they're, uh, some authors tend to be so enamored of whatever research they've done that they tend to uh, expound on it and lose the thread of the story. Uh, you didn't do that in the space-time war, and I was wondering if uh, teaching is part of the intent of your writing or uh, simply just a natural byproduct of it. I think it's a natural byproduct of it. I, I, I've, um, I, I as a graduate student in physics, you had to teach, but as you mentioned, that was quite a while ago, and I enjoyed that, but what I enjoyed the most about teaching physics to undergraduates when I was a graduate student was I, I taught three levels in my time as a teaching assistant. I taught intro to physics for physics majors, and that was terrible because they already really knew it all. <laughs> and so they just went, had to check the box so they could get onto a future class. Uh, physics uh, intro for engineers, and that was real frustrating. No offense to my engineers in the audience, but they weren't really interested in the underlying physics. They were interested in getting the right answer to get ready to take that next engineering class, right? And I understand that. But the one I really enjoyed was teaching introductory physics without math, without much math, to the arts and science students. And the reason for that is because when I would explain things, and apparently I have a talent for doing that, I've, I've done it a lot over the years at science fiction conventions, giving technical talks, and in my nonfiction writing, is I, I really try to make complex subjects understandable to the average person. And I'll just give a quick example as to what gave me the realization I could do that. And that is when I was able to explain to these students why the doorknob is located on the opposite side from the hinge. And, and, and why, and that you could actually calculate using mathematics the torque and, and figure out why you do that and why it makes the door easier to open. And, and I remember teaching that in all three classes and the physics students were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The engineers were like, okay, I'll just calculate. The arts and science students were like, really? Math can do that? Um, and I loved it. I loved that light bulb going off. And so when I'm writing the fiction, and uh, as noted by Publishers Weekly and also on this book, 
uh, I, I'm not used to seeing books that have the recommendation of versatility, but anyway, um, it's kind of a, a 50 cent word for a book cover, yeah, but it, it's, it's something that I really like to do because science fiction is what if, it's gee whiz, it's wow. Right. And, and I wanna take the science into science fiction and make it so everybody can understand it and get that sense of why it's wow. Very cool. And I, I, you certainly conveyed that uh, in the book. I, I appreciated it uh, considerably given that I'm one of those arts students. Of it's great. I, you are my kindred spirit. <laughs> uh, so I also uh, particularly enjoyed the kind of the multinational and multicultural aspects of the characters and the polities that you present in the space-time war. Um, is that something that you see as a natural outgrowth of the community of space scientists and engineers you work with? Uh, today, or it's something to be hoped for, uh, but not really present currently? There is a lot of international collaboration. And, and I have to say that, uh, of course, I, I have to give this caveat whenever I'm interviewed. All my writing is not endorsed by NASA. It's all me. I do it on my own time. Yep. It's a way I relax from a very math intensive day job, right, is to, to use the other half of my brain and, and write and read. But it's been influenced by my day job. Uh, for instance, there is a scene uh, where one of the Earth colonies is attacked on Nikko, uh, which is a Japanese settlement that's out there. That whole chapter was influenced by a project I worked on with Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency that brought me to Japan multiple times over about a four-year period. And getting to know uh, the university professor I was working with, the people at JAXA, touring the uh, Japanese museums, uh, talking to uh, new friends that I met there, learning about their history, their culture, uh, really influenced that particular chapter. And, and I had so much fun putting that chapter in. It was terrible what happened to them. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess I was channeling John Ringo a little bit maybe on that chapter. But it, it, was, um, it was heavily influenced by that. And I also believe there's a heavy influence in my writing about the, uh, the Indian the country of India. They, they feature prominently in both Mission to Metheny and Space Time War, two different universes that I've created. But um, I really believe they are an, a rising global power. Yes. And uh, right now, people are preoccupied with China, but I, I really firmly believe that India, uh, being a democratic country with immense talent, is going to be a major player on the global stage and in space. I fully agree. The, the historical uh, alternate history we were talking about before we went on was uh, it's centered around India in the 1632 universe. So yes, I, I'm very much aware of how uh, how much potential is, is resides in that country and as a democracy, how much how important it is that we recognize that uh, going forward that they can be a, a powerful partner for uh, exploration and any other number of uh, important international things that uh, we're going to be facing in the next coming years. You know, Griffin, uh, I, I want to shout out something else, too. When I, when I was writing the book, I was a little nervous because I was featuring other cultures. And in today's hypersensitive world, I wanted to make sure that I didn't get something wrong or intention, unintentionally do something offensive, right, in, in the chapters. So I have some dear friends who are from Japan uh, and from India, and they were among my beta readers. And when I sent the book out to them, I asked them specifically, hey, tell me if I got something wrong when I'm describing the people and places and culture and such. And also let me know if I've accidentally done something offensive because I'm not trying to, right? Mm -hmm. And I received really good feedback from them 
and 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 they've again I've acknowledged them in the book that it was wonderful to get their enthusiastic responses about what I'd written. Yeah, well, and and uh, you have primarily two uh, uh, primary protagonists, and one of them is not only female but also uh, the Indian uh, and an officer in a very science intensive STEM field. So yeah, I, I can see where uh, you've uh, uh, made those. Uh, uh, active measures to and, and make sure that it was accessible to as many people as possible. It's very well. I tried. I tried. And I wanted to make it as, as correct as I could culturally. Right. And it comes through again. I uh, Having some knowledge of uh, Indian history and that kind of thing, it's uh, it was very impressive as well as Japanese uh, history and, and witnessing their technological advancements. And then this, as well with, with the Chinese, I mean, everybody's pretty much representative. Oh, yeah. Uh, in it and uh, sometimes to their detriment there's the, a bit of the commonwealth thing going on that's uh, pretty fascinating as far as the laws and that kind of thing um, and one of the uh, major things that you throw in the way of uh, your one of your antagonists is is a uh, uh, internal difficulty which is uh, I'll try and again trying to avoid being spoilery but <laughs> I, I really thought that you know that, that having been uh, in law enforcement for 20 years uh, the internal investigation for good things that you've done, but have been completely uh, either misconstrued or intentionally um, viewed in the worst possible light uh, was something that resonated for me as a reader. So I, I was really excited by uh, your representation and that, uh, that aspect of it. Um, and again, without getting too spoilery. <laughs> Well, I also have to throw in a thanks there. There's a fellow that goes to my church who is the, with the Judge Advocate General's office at Redstone Arsenal. And okay. when I wrote the, the legal investigation that was happening, he was my beta reader. <laughs> you know, is this how it would work? Oh, and yeah. uh, he provided some really, really good feedback. Oh, so uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit without getting too spoilery again we want to avoid any of those spoilers for the for your readers but uh your book brought to mind certain aspects of joe haldeman's the forever war for me wow i'm flattered great book was it uh was it at all influential in your writing of the space-time war um maybe unconsciously i that is one of the great books that i have on my top 10 list right of, of books that i read in my um formative years where i was formulating my you know what I'm talking about. It's the golden age, right? Yeah. You know, 12 to about 20. <laughs> um, and that was when the Forever War came out. And, and I remember reading that book and being so profoundly influenced in many ways uh, as, a, as a budding scientist by the whole science aspect of it, right? And, and the whole special relativity and the rate at which time passes thing. But I was also, right, I also realized it was a Vietnam War discussion and right. uh, the whole notion of war. And so I, I, uh, I was struck by how you could have such a multidimensional aspect of the story and, and it hit me on so many different levels. So I have no doubt it influenced me, but it was not a conscious, conscious right. influence, right? Oh, uh, yeah, he's, uh, it's pretty an, an amazing uh, book and uh, he's done some other great stuff as well. But uh, Oh, absolutely. I, I thought that because I, I also just recently read uh, the Forever War, reread it, and I was like, okay, yeah, this, okay, I can see some connective tissue there. Um, I need to reread it. I haven't read the book since I read it the first time, yeah. and I have been rereading some of the old classics. 
some hold up better than others, uh, but I, I'll, if you recommend, I'll go back and check that one. Yeah, that was one of the things. I mean, there, aside from the, you know, the timestamps that he uses for what's going on at those particular, in those eras, there's some really wow yeah. stuff going on that is, uh, is not only this, it's the social commentary as well, that's pretty uh, impressive uh, in light of what's going on now and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I think it was, uh, you know, it, it, it still has a, a certain value. And the science uh, is, is pretty darn interesting too, as far as uh, him describing that. And then again, the, uh, the protagonist was a, uh, in that book was a, a physicist and both of your protagonists have to have a, a, a pretty intensive background in uh, science uh, and physics, orbital mechanics, and that kind of thing for this uh, for this space time war. So that was kind of one of the things that was going on in my head as I read through your uh, book in a, basically a day and a half. So uh, I really quite uh, enjoyed it. Um, so moving from the the kind of the general aspects of the book and uh, that kind of thing, one of the things that going on to the characters. Um, uh, there's a very human kind of love story at the center of this, and uh, the obstacles to that relationship are not all represented uh, by the or presented by the main threat, um, but by organizations the lovers belong to. Uh, this seemed real re realistic to me and, and definitely handled. Uh, was this the result of a conscious world building choice on your part, or did your characters just kind of tell you what was going to happen to them? I think that they really just told me what was going to happen to them. Um, when I was writing the story, I, I am very, very aware that uh, hard science fiction writers have um, kind of a generic problem, especially hard science fiction novels written by men. And, and that is they're all plot and the characters tend to suffer a bit. And so I, I really tried my best to go and do a lot of character development. And in the story, I wanted to have, well, <laughs> this might be a big spoiler, but uh, the, the way I think if somebody's going to ask me now how I want to describe uh, the space-time war in a blurb is if I were trying to sell it in a pitch. Right. I, I think I would, and this may tell your audience a lot about the love affair that's in here, and maybe a little bit too much of a spoiler, is the forever war meets somewhere in time. Hmm. Uh, I, if you've seen the movie with Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve, yep. uh, somewhere in time, uh, that, that is a... That is, that is a, a tearjerker for me, okay? Right. And it, I'm the guy who likes to watch Pat, you know, <laughs> okay? So for me to watch Somewhere in Time and, you know, in, in that mode, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. But I, I wanted to, to have that feel uh, because I, I think that uh, two people who are in love that have obstacles like rival military services, not confronting each other, but, you know, separate military services and the the challenges that would impose, but who really do deeply care for each other right. and have one obstacle after the next thrown in their path to keep their relationship intact. Mm -hmm. uh, not the least of which is uh, career advancement. Yep. And I, I, as, as your readers, when they, when they read the book, as our readers uncover that part of the story, I know that's an issue. I have uh, examples in my work life where you have what I call power couples, right? right? And when one of them advances a little farther than the other, it causes all kinds of institutional problems right. because can you have someone, you know, be the boss of their spouse, right? right. 
And so you, you start, and also- I mentioned, if, I mentioned clearances and you know, that kind of thing too. Oh, yeah, plus, and, and, and plus, if, if you're deeply in love with someone and you also value your career, what if you're offered, offered a career opportunity that could jeopardize your emotional relationship, right? right? And those are difficult choices that a lot of people have to face. And I wasn't trying to make all these obstacles fall in the way of the, the lovers here, but it just happened. Um, <laughs> because the circumstances in which they found themselves in, it demanded it, right? Um, so I, I tend to be a bit of a plotter, mm -hmm. but I have to admit this book took a life of its own because the characters took it that way. Yeah. Um, and, it, it and I tried really hard to make the characters the center. Yeah, and it, it shines through the, uh, the relationships seem to me very realistic and believable. And uh, I, I really uh, was, uh, keeping in mind what you were saying about how a lot of hard science fiction seems to get lost in the facts and, and just the facts, ma'am, as opposed to, you know, let's go to uh, these matters of the heart, because why are we doing this in general is, is always kind of a, a heart thing rather than just a science thing or just a, a, a story thing. So why is it we're doing these things? Uh, I thought that was really deftly handled. So uh, congratulations on that one. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, so a couple of other kind of more odd questions, but uh, so tea or coffee? <laughs> I'm a coffee drinker. <laughs> because your I know why you're asking that. <laughs> right, so the, the, the characters, there's a, there's a good uh, bit of uh, back and forth about tea and, and particular teas uh, that uh, were fun. Uh, well, that's because I'm married to a tea aficionado. Uh, uh, if you come to our home, which if you're in, if you come our way, I have a standing invitation to any, anybody at Bain, just call me and we'll, we'll get well, together. Um, we have a tea cabinet and it's a, it's a wooden cabinet with shelf and has all these drawers and has all these different kinds of teas. And when we have discussion groups come to our home, uh, it's called a stomtish, uh, which is a whole other topic, but you can learn about it on my website, lesjohnsonauthor.com. I've got a section not just about my books, but also about this discussion group we host. And when we get about 20 people in the house and we're talking politics, religion, current events, that kind of thing, about a third of the group really like tea. And so we have a huge assortment of tea. And when, when we had uh, my friend from India uh, is when I learned how discerning someone can be about how their tea is prepared. <laughs> so uh, which, uh, which of your characters would you... Uh would you want as your uh, staunch ally uh, in from this mm. time war? Uh, as my ally, if I were involved with it, I would say I would want the, uh, uh, the crew on the, uh, the Mumbai, the Anika's ship, uh, because what I put that crew through yes. uh, is pretty astounding and resilient, I can imagine, a crew of a ship being. So I think that would be the kind of uh, loyalty that I would hope I would instill or be a part of if I were in that kind of circumstance. Um, the, uh, including the AI? Uh, including the AI, including the AI. And AIs are hard to write. Uh, that's one of the things that I have noticed and there's been a lot of discussion about uh, with my friends and I actually, uh, as we've looked at the advances. I mean, I, if I say, the Amazon Echo device's name who shall not be uttered accidentally. It'll talk right. back to me, right? Um, and everybody has their Siri and all these other things. What is it going to be like to really interact with a true AI? 
that might be sentient or so close that we can't tell the difference? And my answer to that is, I have no idea. So I just took my best guess <laughs> in here, but I think we're all going to be surprised as yeah, to I, what that's really like. I enjoyed the the the, the one aspect that, that uh, I thought were extremely true in, in your representation of them is that they're going to be trained to interact with us in a way that makes us most comfortable. Yes. So obviously they're, you know, they're going to be personable and a little charismatic and, and kind of know how to just to present to us and whether they're doing that amongst themselves is an entirely different question and pretty valid as far as I'm concerned, as far as like, what is that going to mean? But the the presentation to us as this uh, users of this tool of artificial intelligence, uh, assuming that we want it to be, and you even have it divided up in the, uh, by nationality as to what their AIs are like or how anthropomorphic they present to uh, their users. Uh, I thought that was really a, a clever way to do it because it, it will be uh, varied based on culture and cultural needs and norms. Um, how those uh, initial AIs or, or even extremely expert systems, uh, how they'll interact. So I, th I thought that was really uh, cleverly done. And, it's uh, almost a survival trait, uh, yes. I think, because, you know, if they start to be too intimidating, we'll pull the plug. <laughs> um, and, and if they're just not useful, you know, like they said something mean to me that I, I, they, they want me to lose weight because it's the optimum thing for me. I, I must lose weight. Well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> right? okay. so them being able to actually, an AI being able to actually discuss uh, in a sensitive fashion with someone uh, what changes need to be made in order to, to bring about the optimal result, um, I think it's going to be pretty interesting. And I think that the, the person who uh, compiles that kind of uh, personality matrix that allows the interface to work that way is going to be really an, uh, a very rich individual. <laughs> you would think, because right. I think that's what it's going to take to get it commonly accepted. Right. Right. If it's just this impersonal machine that's godlike, I don't want to be around it. Right. Um, so it's, it's sort of like selective breeding in dogs, right? It's selected for big eyes and droopy ears and intelligence. Okay. And I think we're going to program that in or else we're going to be too intimidated and we won't we won't tolerate it. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the aspect of it today, even, you know, it's, it's, some people are, are concerned about science being, they, they just, it's, ah, it's too intimidating. And so again, that uh, the idea that we make it accessible through fiction, but also through the personalities that programming that they're going to eventually end up doing on, uh, at least on AIs that are, you know, for civilian use, uh, I think it's pretty uh, fascinating stuff. And, and again, you handled it pretty uh, amazingly with the individual cultural uh, differences between them. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I didn't realize I did it that well. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I was, I'm kind of sensitive to it because I, one of AI is one of my favorite subjects, if you can't tell from where we went with this, sure. but, uh, and, and uh, so I was kind of like, ding, ding, ding. Oh, this is, this is really cool. And the way that the, the, the Chinese AI interacts with everybody as opposed to the Commonwealth one. And, the fact that the uh, uh, when those AIs are forced to change or or they're no longer available, they're missed. 
Oh um, yeah, I think I, we're going to become very dependent on them. Uh, I yeah. had an experience in my home just this just yesterday where my smart plugs all over the house stopped working, mm. and so my voice commands failed. And uh, suddenly, darn! I got to figure. I got to unplug and turn on a switch and everything else. And uh, it, it's amazing, you know. You get used to these crutches, and when they fail, it's it's inconvenient, right? Um, and and think how much it'll be when we're very dependent. I, I thought about that a lot. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Sky Alert, and it postulated what would happen if we lost all our satellites. Right. And and you know, just to give you the shortcut answer, it would be a really bad day for everybody, for the economy, for the world, for global trade, for your personal life. Um, and I think it's this interaction of us with technology is we, we've gotten so dependent on it that um, we may not realize how dependent we are, which is also kind of scary. Oh, we definitely aren't aren't aware of it. I mean, it, and especially in our day to day, because how many times when your uh, plug stopped working, did you repeat a command just not thinking? Absolutely. You know, that that's what you know always gets me about that that kind of aspect of it is like, okay. Uh, we we aren't aware to the degree to which these conveniences are papering over things that we can either do for ourselves, but we just uh, don't want to, or or you know we want it to be convenient, time saving that kind of thing. So Absolutely. I, I uh, especially when it comes to military applications, you have that in, as well in the uh, again not to be too spoilery, but the close in defense for these incredibly uh, high velocity uh, interactions between objects. Um, is, is basically given over to the AIs and we have to trust that they can do it. <laughs> well, when you, yeah, that's the thing that, that I, when I've read a lot of science fiction and space battles, and I, I love sweeping space battles and space story, I, and, and they have humans reacting quick enough under these circumstances. Right. For me, it, it stretches believability. Right, and that's uh, because at the kind of speeds that these things are traveling, there is no way that humans can react fast enough. Well, that's the thing with the uh, even today with the phalanx uh, defense systems on ships and the U.S. Navy, you know, where they're they're shooting down cruise missiles that are supposed to be coming in inbound towards them. So, yeah, I mean, it it, it it's even there now, and we're not even talking about the speeds uh, possible in in space. So, yeah, I I dug that, and I I think again, it's a uh, uh, it's an excellent uh, representation of what it might be like um, and the the human story in that, the interaction where they're, they're basically just kind of, we just have to grit our teeth and face this. Uh, you know, once the once we've engaged, it's it's up to the AIs to kind of do things. Um, so I- We'll I, either come out on the other side or we'll be a fireball. <laughs> you know, it's that's probably about it. And over the next three seconds, it'll all be decided. <laughs> Especially in opposing uh, uh, vectors where you're going at each other at these enormous speeds. So your uh, engagement envelope and that kind of thing. So again, it was really, really impressive. I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that you said there was the whole crew and that really does uh, go through. But the, the AI having that specific... Um, uh, role to fill uh, was also for me really fascinating, and and how they uh, that AI chose to uh, fulfill their role or mm -hmm. as they saw it. So yeah, again, uh, kudos on those uh, those those characters. Um, and uh, at risk of offending them, uh, there are there any people in your life who directly influenced the creation of any of the characters uh, in the space time? <laughs> Um, 
Well, what I, what I find is that a lot of the characters are composites of people. Um, and uh, so, no, no, I can't think of any particular person in my life that I've, I've tuckerized uh, intentionally here. Now, I've done that in other books. Um, in uh, Saving Proxima, there is a tuckerization of, of, a, of a dear friend uh, who I, I, I think I portrayed her in a good light. She seemed to have enjoyed it. But in, in this particular book, no, no. But I have to admit, in, in an early book I wrote with Travis Taylor, uh, this person, uh, it was Back to the Moon, there was a character that I modeled after someone I had just had a run-in with at work. <laughs> um, but I didn't use their name, but boy, I was imagining it was them when I had something happen to them. <laughs> so uh, I, have to admit, I think writers do that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but no, I, there's no particular person that, that, that strikes me. Um, and so the, uh, with regard to those uh, uh, Winslow and Anika, the, the two uh, protagonists, um, you had uh, their background uh, kind of extensively sketched out uh, for the readers. Um, how much of that was uh, in the, the kind of world building aspect that where you were, okay, well, how do I figure all this out uh, beforehand? Or was it again a kind of a natural outgrowth? Well, I need them to have this kind of background to to do X, Y, and Z later on. Um, I think it was a it was a mixture. I, I mean, going into telling the story, you know, when you have the overall plot concept, that's one thing. But then you have to put the people in the story, right? right. And so I knew I wanted to have the love story. I wanted to have the relationships. So I created the characters, uh, but their background kind of had to be what it had to be to make them be where they are and to make the decisions that they made in the story. Right. And uh, one of the things that was kind of fun for me was uncovering that background. Right. Because I, I've read stories where I get jarred out of the story when a character does something that doesn't seem like it fits with who they are or what I think they would be like based on what they've done so far. Right. And so when I would postulate, okay, why would this, why would Winslow do this? Well, maybe, he would, no, that won't work, right? You know, that wouldn't be in character. And so I have to admit a bit of that was pantsing. Right. Uh, because I would get into it and I'd realize, well, wait a minute, this character's going to react this way. What in their background could have prompted them to have this view or, or otherwise? And then, so yeah, it's a mix. Right. And that's one of the things I like about uh, both characters, uh, but uh, Winslow in particular, is that he, uh, he knows he's got a temper and he kind of keeps control of it. And, uh, you know, he's, they also, uh, both of them, uh, Anika and Winslow, are both kind of aware of, um, the uh, possible problems that their relationship might have. Uh, and yet that's not really as important as their relationship um, in many aspects. So I, I'd love that they're, they're fully uh, uh, rounded out characters. I, I thought that was very well done on, on that aspect of the uh, uh, character development. Is there anybody that you, uh, you kind of, as you're writing it, you're, uh, any of the secondary characters that you kind of wished you could um, tell a little bit more about or that you did tell a little bit more about and then had to like, no, it's just not, it's not essential to the story. So I'm going to go ahead and. Well, yeah. And, and in fact, this is something that was critical to the editing process. Uh, when, when I submitted uh, early draft just to get feedback from T uh, Tony, Tony Weisskopf, um, she, she mentioned that I, that, that particularly the characters on Nika, the, the Japanese setting, 
that uh, they were just extremely interesting characters. And it's a shame I couldn't have done more to have be their story, but they were put in there for another purpose, which right. you found. Right. And so if I were to go back and say, ooh, who would I like to develop more? I think it'd be more on the history and development of the Nico column right. and uh, how that came about and what they were doing and, uh, and all that. Because again, it's that Japanese culture thing. Right. And for some reason, when I went to Japan, uh, they, they have technology so much more integrated into their lives than we do. Um, have you ever been to Japan? By any chance? No, no. no. Well, I mean, even going to the bathroom yeah. uh, is, is huge there. I mean, you, you go into the bathroom and you shave and the mirrors are heated so that where you're standing to see yourself in the mirror, it's not, it's not fogged up from the shower, right? Uh, you go to the bathroom, everything's a bidet. You got to make sure you don't hit the wrong button or you get evergreen scent, right? I mean, everything is, they have this seamless integration. And every time I've been to Japan, I feel like I've stepped into a world that's 50 years in the future. Right. And that that just fascinates me about how they just, just absorb this into their life and this view of integration of technology into their life. Whereas here in the U.S., you know, we have our privacy concerns. I'm sure there are Bain readers or, you know, abhorrent to the idea of having these smart devices in your home because what about privacy, right? And I understand that. And it's a balance of convenience versus privacy. But we as Americans tend to be, um, we embrace technology, but we're also, you know, put our hands yeah, up. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And in Japan, they seem to be much more intimate with the technology. And that that's something I think I'd like to explore in a future book is is what would what would life be like when it's not just a part of your life as a tool, but it becomes I don't know how to describe it, it becomes part of who you are. Well, it's, yes, it's that integral to your existence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, while I was there, I mean, they were testing robots, the Asimo robot. They're developing these home healthcare Nanny's. comfort bots, you know, and and it's like wow. Imagine that. I can't. I just can't see that happening here. So no, I would like to develop Nico more. And yet they still hold on to these traditions that are uh, amazing as well. That's, that's oh yeah, one of the things that uh, is interesting about that uh, particular cultural uh, aspect is that they they seem to be able to to do both, uh, and without a lot of the visible friction that we would see in other places and other uh, cultures. Absolutely. Um, the uh... and as we uh, and as we go to space, you know, it's going to be it's going to be just like that. I, I can't I can't imagine that we're not going to have. It's not going to be this. Uh, you know, as an American, I mean, in my my books too, you don't know what ethnicity somebody is unless you look at them, right? And because they're an American, and that's my ideal view of what our future in space will be like. Is it will continue to be this agglomeration of all the world's ethnicities and cultures, but other countries aren't going to be that. And, and I think when you look at the bridge or the, the crew of a, of a Japanese ship, it's going to be mostly Japanese people, right? right. And uh, India, it's going to be mostly people who are ethnically from the subcontinent of India. Right. Whereas in the U.S., it's going to be uh, people who are American in political philosophy and a worldview, but they're going to be multiple ethnicities that are going to be there. Or the, common, the Commonwealth as well, yeah. And the Commonwealth, that's right. Because, but it, they're a little bit more segmented, but they'll have more integration into it. Right. And I, I like the Commonwealth. And of course, 
I, I, I debated whether or not to actually call the ship by the name uh, that I did because of, I was influenced by Horatio Hornblower. Right. right. Uh, and uh, when I realized that very few writers had actually adopted <laughs> uh, that view, I, I kind of, I have to admit, I, I hearken back to the Hornblower series in writing about one's low price and, and the Commonwealth Navy. So. Hmm. There you go, a little, little tidbit for the fans, right? Yep. Uh, the uh, one of the things that kind of going back on the technology and aspect of it as sure. well. Sure. The um, uh, the fusion uh, uh, drives uh, ID uh, or being able to ID them by their fusion drives um, as uh, is that a, a, an actual uh, thing or is that a projection that you're uh, that you would be able to identify uh, based on their output of. Uh, certain elements that kind of thing and it, it's a real thing that's a real thing. and and it, it's based on um and this is all publicly available stuff right now that uh the u.s uh counter terrorism groups whatever th there is a, a pretty extensive radionuclide database right which basically says if a bomb goes off somewhere we will be able to know by sampling the byproducts of the damage the radiation is emitted in what nuclear reactor anywhere in the world the okay. nuclear fissionable or, fish or fusionable materials came from. And because they all have their unique signature by the place that uh, they, were, they were made. Right. So if some terrorist group gets a dirty bomb and sets it off somewhere, we would be able to say, uh-oh, this is you know uranium that came from this reactor in this country. And it's from that unique signature. And, and the same would be from a fusion drive or on a spacecraft right. that if you look at it with the right instruments, which would be spectroscopy, you would be able to pinpoint like a fingerprint um, the ship because each reactor is slightly different in its history and its, its ability to process these things that you'd be able to tell. Cool. Yeah, that was one of the more, uh, I'm always interested in like vessel identification, that kind of thing is, is always interesting because the, you know, the VIN system that we use on our vehicles and is, uh, it's, it's a challenge. Let's put it that way. The, well, it's an artifact of technology from, you know, 80 years ago, right? Or 70 right. years ago. That's exactly. how we used to do it and we still do it. Right. But for, no, but for, for space drives now on chemical engines, maybe somewhat, not so much, but anything nuclear, it's going to have a unique characteristic, unique signature. Yep. And, it, and you're uh, the fusion versus fission. You're fairly sure that that's, that's the, that's the case as well as ever. It is definitely the case. It, it is definitely the case. Cool. In, in either case, you'll be able to tell a, a unique fingerprint. Right. So, uh, we're kind of approaching our, our last few minutes on this. Uh, I know you have other things to do with your day, um, but uh, is there anything we didn't touch on or that I didn't ask about that you wanted to discuss? Well, I, first off, I love spending part of my day talking about books and space and future and AI and space travel and all those kinds of things. So I, I appreciate your, your wanting to interview me about this. But in terms of things about the book, uh, just that I, I hope people are, when they read it, that they're entertained, that they want to turn the page and go to the next page, because that's what any, any writer wants, is they want the reader to be entertained. But as a hard science, science fiction writer, I also want you to come away saying, wow, I didn't think about that. You know, um, I, I, I think we as uh, people in modern day 21st century America, we don't ponder the big questions enough. 
And in, in my books, they're written, entertained, maybe a little bit of educate, but I'd also like for people to put them down and say, you know, I haven't really thought about that. What does that really mean in the big context of things? Is that really possible? And if, and if, if people come away from my books with those three aspects, then I, I feel like I've been successful. Well, you stole my last question. That was what I was going to say was, what do you want people to carry away with them from your uh, having read your book? And that's, a, I think that's an excellent answer. <laughs> well, it's sincere. That's what I want. Uh, yeah. Because I wouldn't be writing if I didn't want people to come away with that. And um, not, not much more I can say on that one. So what other uh, uh, authorial projects do you have in the, in the works? Or is there going to be a short story regarding uh, the colony of nico <laughs> well maybe uh that's that's a real good possibility I, right now i'm working on uh the second book uh in the saving proxima series with travis that's a three book series and travis and i are in the middle of the second book for that which will hopefully finish up early in 2022 so i don't know when it would come out maybe toward the end of next year and it's a it's a pretty sweeping book on what if questions i mean we're, we're dealing with what's the nature of being human right in that series and I've got some other ideas uh, talked about with Tony, and there, there's a big one that we're going to pursue that I can't announce yet, uh, but it's going to be quite a, an interesting departure for me and a lot of fun. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to go public with that soon, but it's, it's a new book project that, uh, that Tony and, and Bain have just approved. I've also got a nonfiction book that will be coming out next year from Princeton University Press uh, called The Traveler's Guide to the Stars, and it's a popular science nonfiction book all about all about interstellar exploration. So I'm still busy writing some nonfiction while I do the fiction. Excellent. And uh, I look forward to seeing that. Um, and you, did, you, did you give a time for that when it was gonna be out or? I, I think it'll be out in 2022. The book is finished. I've submitted it to Princeton. They're doing the editing. So I would suspect it'll be out sometime, sometime next year. If it's okay to mention a book from another publisher, since it's nonfiction, <laughs> I think that's probably okay. And I'm pretty excited because it's probably the most prestigious press I've published with. Princeton University Press, uh, for me, uh, is a big deal yeah. uh, to be able to be published by them. That I'm, I'm going to be able to check off one of those life, you know, career goal achievement boxes, uh, having been having a book accepted by them. Plus, I'm really hoping to get back to conventions next year. I've been going through withdrawal symptoms this last year and a half because I really thrive uh, talking at conventions about space and space exploration and meeting with fans and just geeking out with everybody else there. And it's been a tough, tough year and a half. Do you have uh, uh, specific plans for that as far as the, what your next uh, public appearance might be? I do. I do. I'm, I'm going to be a guest at uh, Mid-SouthCon in Memphis in March. Uh, of course, LibertyCon in next summer, next June in Chattanooga. And I hope to return to DragonCon next year. And if there are any other cons out there that are looking for a, a, an offer guest or a science guest, give me a, give me a shout. Uh, I, I, love, I love talking to folks and I'll give a lot of talks and meet with folks and, and move forward. I enjoy it. So thanks very much, Les. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show today and uh, talking to us. Uh, once again, the book is uh, The Space-Time War by Les Johnson, out now from Bain Books uh, in uh, trade paper, paperback and ebook. Uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's been a good hour. Thanks, Griffin. I think we're in good hands here at the podcast with you behind the mic. And thanks to Les Johnson, of course, for talking with you. 
Now we bring you the ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. We will now answer the three most common questions asked, and then we will terminate this call. By anyone can use the ring, do we mean that another species can use it to enter your system? Yes. Does that mean that hostile or friendly forces can use it? Yes. Are you allowed to block the ring? No. Goodbye. Hell, the president said as the phone went dead. Those were my top questions. NASA? Input? There's a real philosophical question whether there can be hostile species at the level to be able to use interstellar travel, the director said. The energies involved mean that survival as a species, if you are innately hostile, becomes difficult. If you can create a spacecraft that can go 300,000 miles in any reasonable time frame, you can more or less destroy a world. The biosphere, at least. Over time, hostile species will tend to wipe themselves out. That's a great philosophical point, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said. But the fact that the Gertal mentioned hostile species and not fighting near the ring probably means you're more or less dead wrong, pun intended. And according to my people, we can't even get to this thing. Oh, we can get there, the director said. We're working on a proposal for a manned spacecraft capable of the journey. Time and budget? The president asked, wincing. About five years, and, well, the budget is still being worked on. Under or over a trillion? The national security advisor asked. Oh, under, probably. Two years after first contact. NASA has completed preliminary studies to the studies necessary to begin preliminary design phase of the bid phase on a potential ship to reach but not enter the Gudram Ring. Cost? $976 million. The Prime Minister of Britain picked up his phone without looking. It was the ringtone of his secretary. Yes, Janice? Actually, my name is Andrilai Rirgo of the Glatoon. I am the captain of an exploratory vessel which has just exited your Gertel ring. We come in peace and are interested in trade. The prime minister looked at the handset, then at the phone, which was registering a random string of numbers from the caller ID. Just as he was getting over the shock, the door opened and his secretary started waving her arms frantically. He was able to read her lips well enough to get the words, Gate Emergence. The rather graphic hand motions, not to mention his current conversation, helped. He nodded at her and went back to his conversation. Well, uh, Mr. Rirgo, did you say? Welcome to Earth. So we really don't have anything they want? The president said. No, sir, the Commerce Secretary said. The computer chips they're offering are centuries more advanced than anything we produce. Enormous storage and something close to infinite parallel processing. They also integrate with terrestrial systems seamlessly, somehow. The IT experts are scratching their head as to how. But why they can just take over our systems is now pretty obvious. 
The chips are more like viruses than computers. But what they mainly want is precious metals. Specifically, the platinum group, which are pretty rare. Also gold. Do we mine those? The president asked. We do in small quantities, Interior said. More in Canada. Most are extracted from nickel and copper mining. Most of the world's deposits are in South Africa or Russia. Damn it. Three years after first contact. This had better be important, the president said as he entered the situation room. The Secret Service had practically yanked him out of a meeting with the Saudi ambassador. We've had a gate emergence, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said over the video link. We've had those every few months for the last year, the president pointed out. Mostly what I suppose could be tramp freighters, no offense to our Glatoon friends intended. It had quickly become apparent that even tramp freighter captains could access any electronic transmission. This had less to do with the super-advanced chips they traded for enormous amounts of heavy metals or anything else that seemed of some worth than their software systems and implant technology. Efforts to duplicate their information technology had so far been unsuccessful, and most experts put humans as at least 500 years behind current Glatoon technology. Not Glatoon. The ship looks like a warship and isn't responding to our standard hails. Is it big? The president asked. He'd been elected on the basis of his domestic programs and wasn't quite up to speed on international affairs, much less interstellar. It really doesn't matter how big it is, Mr. President, the admiral in command of Space Command responded. We still don't get the engineering of the Glatun reactionless drive or their power system, so we're grounded. If it's a warship, it's going to be able to hold the orbitals, and who holds the orbitals holds the world. Oh. All stocks of precious metals, the Secretary of State said. Private, corporate, and governmental? We can keep enough stock of gold to keep the IT industry running, but that's it. We pointed out that it would make us more efficient at extraction, and they accepted that argument, but palladium, which turns out is important for hard drives, has to be turned over. That's for all the world's governments. Or our cities get what Mexico City, Shanghai, and Cairo got. Pony up and the Horvath won't nuke the rest of the world. Technically, they weren't nukes, Spacecom pointed out. They were kinetic energy weapons. Practical effect is similar, but no fallout, thank God. Why those three? The president asked. Did they say? No, sir, Spacecom said. But if you've ever seen a night shot of the world, it's pretty obvious. They picked up the three that are most noticeable. Since we're in a shield room, I'll point out that that was a pretty poor choice on their part. I don't think they developed full intel on the planet. Doesn't really matter, but it's a potential chink in their armor. They're not gods. True, the JCS said. But we also can't fight them. 
Recommendation of the JCS is that we pay the tribute and try to get the Glatun to intervene. We just can't fight them. So are we going to have them landing here? The president asked. If so, there's going to be a major security situation. So far, we haven't even seen the Horvath, the Secretary of State said. All discussion has been electronic or with their robots. As to where they are landing, she nodded at the Secretaries of Commerce and Interior. We and Canada will ship our small amount of production to South Africa, which will handle the transfer, Commerce said. There will only be landings in South Africa and Russia, and only to pick up refined metals. They appear to want to keep the world running so that we can fill their holds, not that we can. The whole world's production amounts to a few dozen tons a year. Spacecom looked a bit irritated for a moment, possibly because his aide had touched him on the arm, then grunted, What I don't get is why they're getting them on the planet. Spacecom said, according to my experts, most of this stuff is to be found in asteroids. We've got a ton of asteroids just cluttering up the damn system. Most of what we mine is from asteroids that have crashed into the Earth. Why not just mine the asteroid belt? Possibly because then slaves don't do it for them, the president said dryly. It's a matter of what your world calls realpolitik, the Glatun representative said politely. The Glatun was a bit over a meter and a half tall biped with blue skin, red eyes, a vaguely pig-like head and snout, and a mane of white fur running down his back. He was dressed in an informal tunic for the discussion, which was, in diplospeak, non-binding and informal which was where all the really serious binding resolutions were always hammered out. We have called for the Horvath to remove themselves from your world's orbitals, and they have chosen to ignore our requests. Since Earth is, to them, a very good conquest, relatively rich in heavy metals compared to Horvath, they won't leave absent either armed confrontation or possibly a trade embargo. Since Earth has essentially little or no value to the Glatun Federation, we have a sufficiency of strategic metals, and there are negative aspects to both choices on our part. We must unfortunately state that we remain neutral in this dispute. We have an extensive asteroid belt, the Undersecretary of State for Interstellar Affairs said, throwing in her only bone. We believe it to be rich in the platinum group. For which you should be grateful, the Glatun replied. Most inhabited systems are mined out. However, our laws and long experience prevent us from mining your asteroid belt as long as there is not a centralized or at least effectively sovereign system government. The Horvath meet the definition, not the United States of America. Certainly not the UN. The Horvath have also offered the asteroid belt. Be equally grateful that we declined that offer. There are enormous problems with asteroid mining. It requires quite large lasers and fabbers and is fuel and energy intensive. 
To make it worthwhile for a Glatun corporation to invest in this system would require long-term leases. In the current security and political situation, the Glatun Federation would not permit such legally binding contracts. We're on our own, the USSIA finally said, becoming decidedly informal. We have 16 million dead, three major cities in ashes, and you're neutral? Since we are speaking frankly, the Glatun said, the decision of our policymakers is that Earth is simply sufficiently unknown and unnoticeable to take the chance of losing credibility in a minor dispute. The reality is that the Horvath, who are not much more advanced than Earth, would probably leave if so much as a single Glatun destroyer entered the system and ordered them to do so. However, if they didn't and shots were fired, much less loss of Glatun life, there would be questions asked in Parliament, AI queries, and of course the press would simply go wild. It is easier and safer to do nothing. Absent Earth becoming more of a hot topic in the Glatun Federation or becoming in some way strategically important, yes, you are on your own. That was another entry in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to guest interviewer Griffin Barber, Audible.com, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Les Johnson for discussing his new novel, The Space-Time War, with us. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. (laughs) 